Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history and the 2023 winner of an award of merit for excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations, brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. We have brand new Facebook and Instagram pages under Grading the Nutmeg. Please follow us and you'll get behind the scenes photos, sneak peeks of new content, and info on how to purchase our new merchandise. Although Connecticut sometimes seems like a small, kind of isolated place on the map, it was connected to the far-flung, complex, cosmopolitan British Empire, even in the 17th century. This year on Grading the Nutmeg, we're going to explore Connecticut's maritime history with episodes on colonial Connecticut's trade with the British colonies of the Caribbean, privateering during the American Revolution, which is similar to pirating, but you'll find out the difference, and the whaling ships sent around the globe in the 19th century. Connecticut's maritime entrepreneurs made and lost fortunes by sending ships to sea and employed sailors, shipbuilders, traders, drovers, rope makers, provisioners, and more. In today's episode, we're going to talk about sugar. Sugarcane production in the tropical climate of the British islands of the West Indies made tremendous fortunes. But to cultivate and process sugarcane into sugar required vast amounts of labor. As my guest, Dr. Matt Warshower, wrote in the summer 2023 issue of Connecticut Explored, the fields and mills of the Caribbean were worked by African peoples stolen from their homes placed into shackles, and delivered to the British colonies in North America and the Caribbean. The National Park Service, on its website from the Boston African American National Historic Site, states that from the 1500s to the 1800s, merchants transported approximately 12 million Africans across the Atlantic as human property. From 1560 to 1850, about 4.7 million Africans were sent to the Caribbean, and at least 388,000 arrived in North America. Today we'll hear about how the trade route, known as the Triangle Trade, moved people, products, and goods across the North Atlantic Ocean, helping to make British plantation owners, as well as some colonial Connecticut families, rich. My guests today are Dr. Matt Warshower and Dr. Kathy Hermes. Dr. Warshower has written extensively on Andrew Jackson, Slavery, and the Civil War. He serves on the editorial board for Connecticut Explored Magazine and authored the summer 2023 feature story, Connecticut's Sweet Tooth, The Sugar Trade and Slavery in the West Indies, which you can read on the Connecticut Explored website. Dr. Kathy Hermes is the publisher of Connecticut Explored. She is a historian who has published extensive research on the Atlantic world and colonial Connecticut. She is the historian for the award-winning project Uncovering Their History, African, African African-American, and Native American Burials in Hartford's Ancient Burying Ground, 1640 to 1815. This website includes all the known African, African African-American, and Native American burials found in the burying ground and is just a revolutionary project. She recently completed two new projects for the Ancient Burying Ground Association, including one telling the stories of people with connections to the West Indies and one on women, black, white, and indigenous who rest in the burying ground. 
You can hear more about this cutting-edge research with Dr. Hermes on Grading the Nutmeg episodes number 149, New London in the Middle Passage, and number 78, Uncovering African and Native Lives in 17th and 18th Century Hartford. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Mary. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks, Mary. I'm looking forward to this. You know, as the Caribbean historian Eric Williams noted, the West Indian Islands became the hub of the British Empire and the most precious colonies ever recorded in the whole annals of imperialism. Their great wealth was based on sugarcane cultivation and a brutal slave regime. Matt, can you describe to us how that so-called triangle trade worked? Absolutely. I, I mean, when you think about sugar, look at the availability of sugar to us today. It's remarkable. And it was one of these first crops that really, in a lot of ways, creates capitalism. So it's this cane that they can grow in these Caribbean islands all throughout the West Indies. They cultivate it on virtually every tillable piece of soil throughout all of these islands. And what do they need in order to do that? They need labor. And they turn to Africa and they bring, uh, you know, well over 10 million, you know, stolen lives from the west coast of Africa to these Caribbean islands, then, then their focus is to produce this sugar cane and, and crush it and create the sugar to create molasses, to create rum, which they then bring up to you know other places throughout the world, but in particular to North America as well. And then the other you know, direction is, you know, we funny, we think of it as this triangle where it's going in this perfect circle or, you know, in this perfect, you know, angle, one directional, but it's really not because there's tremendous amounts of supplies that are going to all of these islands. It's really quite a remarkable story. You know, Connecticut always seems like such a small, isolated place on the map, but it was really connected to this far-flung, complex, cosmopolitan British world, even in the 17th century. We heard on our last episode on Benedict Arnold that he made money on what was described as the West Indies trade. How did Connecticut's 17th and 18th century provisioners and farmers make money, and what did they send to the West Indies? Well, I am amazed, and we were talking about it just before the podcast started, about how entrepreneurial these, you know, these Puritans were, that they arrive to this new world and they set up shop and we have this sort of, I guess, this faulty image in our head of a bunch of people who, you know, all they did is go to church and farm on their own farms and develop the, you know, the the vast forest of Connecticut. But it, it's really untrue. They were, uh, they were business people and they got to it right away. And they realized that they could make a tremendous amount of money by running ships, you know, down the Connecticut River, but also from the, you know, the, the two leading ports. One was New Haven, one was uh, New London. And they sent just vast, vast amounts of supplies down to the West Indies because, as I said before, every tillable piece of soil was used for sugarcane. The islands, they, they didn't produce enough food to, to take care of even the people on the island. So everything that they needed was being shipped down there. And, you know, to go down the list, the full list of everything that we sent, 
we could spend the next 25 minutes just reading the list. I mean, I, one of the things I wrote in the article that always cracked me up was that I, I wrote a hundred and over 109,000 chickens cackled their way <laughs> to, to the West Indies, right? And it's all kinds of animals, some live, some slaughtered and, and, and packed in barrels. It's, you know, staves and hoops for building barrels. It's, you know, literally anything that you can think of, they're shipping down there. You wrote in the article that voyages usually took like two to five weeks and that you've got a little, as you said, live animals being shipped down. I know horses seem to be, there was a huge number of horses and they have to be kept on the top deck, is that right? And then fed and cared for all the way down? That's right. They had this special sling that they could lift them from uh, the docks onto uh, the tops of the ship and they were putting pens on the tops of the ship. And and when you look at this listing, this table of the most valuable things, Horses were the single most valuable commodity that were sent down there. And, you know, I have, you know, we, we included a little bit of a graph in the article. And, and it, it's the, the value of the horses and the number of horses. You know, when, when you look at Connecticut, what it produces and what it ships compared to other states, not just New England states, well, well colonies, excuse me, other colonies, but not just British North American colonies colonies all throughout the British Empire. Connecticut is far and away, far and away, the the main source of all of these goods, including these horses. I know, and you say uh, in the article too that Connecticut traded with the British West Indies, which I could understand because they're all part of the British Empire at that point, but also the French and the Dutch islands too. Let me just mention a few of these things that you mentioned that we could be here all night listing, but just just to give you an idea of the scale, because you need so much food shipped in to feed the enslaved population because you need so many hands and so many enslaved individuals to grow this labor-intensive sugarcane. But some of the things that Connecticut shipped, which I think we'll all identify with, like one is even the logo for their town, Weathersfield Onions, those are shipped to the West Indies, but you've got, as we said, livestock of all kinds, fish, beef, corn, oats, cheese, lumber, barrel staves, uh, building supplies, things like oak and maple and bricks, things that the, they need for building, and it, it's just a, a massive undertaking. How does it get organized? Do uh, Is there a middleman or is it the farmer sells produce to somebody like Governor Trumbull and then he arranges for it to be shipped? Do we know anything about that? Well, you, I mean, you ask the, the, the million dollar question, I guess, that we don't have a really good answer to. Uh, and I, I did look into this and I, I couldn't find much. Uh, and that is... Obviously, there's not, you know, we don't have Costco. <laughs> you know, the Puritans are not pulling up to their local congregational Costco and filling up their giant carts and then, you know, bringing it down to the ships and sending it off. They are, it's, I think, a massive enterprise of lots of small and medium-sized producers. And there are, in fact, middlemen 
who are organizing all of this and pulling all these supplies together. And I think in regards to the horses, I think they're bringing horses down from New Hampshire and Vermont as well. So they're collecting all this vast array of things and then putting it on the ships, but we really don't have that much in the way of records to prove all of this. But you mentioned Trumbull. Trumbull was absolutely involved in this. And he would hire, we know that he would hire um, additional workers and in particular butchers to butcher his, his cattle and his sheep and, and other animals so they could be packed in, in these barrels and shipped down uh, in the spring. So it, it's pretty remarkable. So we've talked about the fact that we know that enslaved individuals, uh, Africans, are being um, brought from Africa to the Americas where they're, you know, slavery, of course, is legal in Connecticut at this point too, but all over the, the Americas and certainly into the West Indies. What else comes back from the West Indies to Connecticut the other way? Well, everybody's favorite thing. Rum. Rum, rum, and more rum, and lots of molasses to make rum. You know, there's a great old book, Kathy will remember the, the author, I can't remember. It's called The Alcoholic Republic. Do you remember that book, Kathy? I do remember the book, but I don't remember it, the it, author. And, and it's, it's basically, I, I thought about it a lot during the pandemic, actually, because liquor sales all over the United States just went through the roof. And that, you know, the story of alcohol in America, you think about prohibition, and it, it is a, a long, long history that changes as different peoples and immigrants and cultures come to America. And, you know, for this period, you know, you're, you're talking about rum as the drink of choice. It's cheap, it's available, and, you know, it's just, uh, it's great with Coke. And then is that traded then to England? Is that that leg of the triangle? Some of it is traded to England. A lot of raw sugar and molasses are traded to England. But what the colonists really want from England are good finished goods because the uh, we don't have the manufacturing base yet. So that would, to my mind, would include things like fabric and oh. dishes even tea, tea becomes important later, oh, as yeah. we know. But um, well, even glass, paper, right? glass, glass for your house, furniture, paint, yep. lead, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the so everything that you really need to have a better quality life, household, better appointed household. So we've got in 1834, Britain passes the Slavery Abolition Act. What does that do to this triangle trade? Well, I mean, the power of the British Navy is, you know, they pass the act. Britain passes the act, but it's the power of the British Navy that really clamps down hard on the slave trade, on those ships that are leaving from the west coast of Africa and into the Caribbean. You know, they're not able to clamp down on the trade entirely. You know, it's difficult. It's a big ocean. And the United States at this point, especially by the 1830s, is still very, very much devoted to the institution of slavery. Now, we know that there are still slave ships arriving. Uh, it's much more in the United States a domestic slave trade that's going on. But yeah, I mean, Britain's, Britain's enactment really makes a difference. 
does that affect the amount of sugar that's cultivated or they just have to approach it differently? Oh, sugar still being produced in a, it's in a, still, it's still incredibly valuable. Yeah. And there have been at that point, there are enough slaves that have been shipped over that the islands are pretty well populated. I mean, one of the big differences between the Caribbean and the United States as a nation is, and early on is the, the death toll. These sugar islands are basically a death sentence. And that's why they need to keep resupplying the number of slaves that are there. Kathy, I want to talk a little bit uh, with you about all the new information you found about people that are buried at the ancient burying ground. Your work really has just uncovered such a diversity of people that uh, I feel like sometimes if I walked down Main Street in Hartford, I would have a much better idea of who I was going to meet and pass by because it was certainly indigenous, African, African-American, free, slave, British, Dutch. It's, it's a really diverse group of people, it and really yeah. uh, it's fascinating. So you, in your project that you just completed for the Ancient Burying Ground Association on connections to the West Indies, what did you find? There were a lot of interesting things that I think the public may not know as much about. Some, th some things we've known for a long time. For example, that immediately after the Pequot War, in 1637, so right at the time that Connecticut was really founded, captives from that war, Pequot captives, were sent to Bermuda and to a place called Providence Island, which is now called uh, Santa Catalina, and it's off the coast of Nicaragua. But Providence Island was a Puritan island. And, and so the captives were sent there, and then enslaved people of African descent brought back to Connecticut and to New England. And we also know that in, by 1641, there was what we call bioprospecting in Providence Island. So people from Connecticut went down to investigate what kinds of animals and sea life and crops or indigenous plants might be on Providence Island that they could make money from. So initially, I think they envisioned places like Providence Island in the Caribbean supplying Connecticut rather than Connecticut provisioning those islands. But that didn't last long. Providence Island was conquered by the Spanish in 1641, and so that was cut off. But it didn't stop people from Connecticut from investing in the Caribbean. And Richard Lord and Samuel Willis two very prominent men in the 1670s in Connecticut, Willis eventually became governor, purchased land in Antigua on the cabbage tree plantation. And that is a plantation that continued to exist as a sugar plantation into the 20th century, which is sort of interesting. I mean, obviously it, that without- That is really interesting, I, that I, tropical, you know, cultivation and agriculture. And, you know, obviously the, the slave trade had ended by there, there were no enslaved people in the 20th century, but in the 17th century, uh, the Lords and Willises employed enslaved labor on that plantation and then brought some of those people to Hartford over time. Looking for the perfect Valentine's Day gift for your loved ones? Then Connecticut Explored Magazine has a deal for you. From now until February 15th, receive 25% off all new and gift subscriptions. Spread the love of history by giving a one or two year magazine subscription to the ones you love most. Or treat yourself to a subscription. 
visit ctexplore.org slash subscribe and use code VAL24 to buy the gift of history today. That's V-A-L-2-4. Praised as an ambitious and insightful book, African American Connecticut Explored is the first collection to delve into the African American experience in Connecticut from the earliest years of the state's colonization into the 20th century. Celebrating its 10th year of publication, this award-winning book is used in schools across the state and prominently features the voices of Connecticut's African Americans through its 50 essays. Explore more about the Black Governors of Connecticut, prominent Black abolitionists, the 29th Regiment of Colored Volunteers in the Civil War, and even baseball great Jackie Robinson by purchasing your copy. Published by Wesleyan University Press, this book represents the collaborative effort of Connecticut Explored and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture with support from the State Historic Preservation Office and Connecticut's Freedom Trail. Copies are available at Wesleyan University Press. Isn't there a law, sort of a law case that gets settled where somebody owes somebody for enslaved <laughs> children? It's a really, it's a really complicated legal case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not even sure I could explain it in any kind of simple way here, but they are involved in a lawsuit the person they're being sued by actually remains on the cabbage tree plantation, becomes one of the governors down there, and eventually his descendants become the Pinckney family in South Carolina. So it's a so they become quite prominent wow, in their own that's right. A super prominent family. And, uh, yeah, sure yes, is. and so the cabbage tree plantation investment by Willis and Lord is essentially a failure over time, but they. But by investing in it, they develop this relationship where they're able to bring so many people. And so that's why you see in the, in the late 17th century in Connecticut, you see so many people of African descent. So like you say, this is a, Hartford's very diverse. It has native people. It has Wangunk, Pequot, Mohegan, Quinnipiac, probably Nipmuc as well. African-descended people, both from Africa and from the Caribbean, and then all kinds of European people. So the the 17th century is really a period of great trade and mixing of peoples. I know, and I just think that when I was in grammar school, which was a long time ago, I will admit, uh, it just was, was presented as such a simplistic thing. The pilgrims arrived and that was it you know, till the American Revolution. But instead, there's all these people and it's such a cosmopolitan mix of people. And I know in Connecticut, aren't they building ships here too, Matt? They are building ships everywhere in Connecticut. I mean, we think of Mystic because Mystic Seaport's there, but all up and down the Connecticut River, all up and down the Housatonic, all up and, you know, I mean, just everywhere. They're cutting down a lot large parts of the forests and we have just access to so much wood and because sailing is is the you know these rivers and the ocean are the super highway of of their time um we're we're really producing a lot of a lot of materials a lot of ships and and shipping a lot of lumber so other people Mm -hmm. can build ships Mm -hmm. this maritime thing we've got upcoming episodes uh that are going to be about privateering during the american revolution Uh, all these same ships get pressed into service for that to be big money makers. Hope, people hope they were going to make money as privateers. 
And then we've also got the advent of Connecticut's participation in whaling. So stay tuned. We're going to have more maritime information and episodes coming up. But back to, Kathy, your new research. Samuel Gibson, who's a grocer, fascinates me. Tell us about him. So Samuel Gibson was enslaved in the West Indies. He was probably born there. And he was purchased by somebody named Frisbee. I don't know the person's first name, but the Frisbee family of Guilford, brought to Guilford and was enslaved there for a number of years. He must have learned to read and write when he was with this family. He purchased his freedom for 100 pounds. And then when he was free, he moved to Hartford and he had a very prosperous grocery store. He advertised in all the major newspapers, even in New York and in Massachusetts, built up a a sterling reputation, really. He dealt with Turks and Koikos to bring salt and various other things from the the West Indies and sold a lot of different products, but he, he died rather young, in his 30s, when he passed away, and he didn't have any family. And so he wound up leaving all of his very substantial estate. This is an estate over over $1,000. What worth. year around? And, what year? and he died in 1795. 1795, okay. So, so he had an estate worth over $1,000. And he left all of his real property and personal property to his apprentice. The apprentice happened to be the son of his former master. Oh, isn't that interesting? It's it's very interesting. And, you know, this is something that we found in a few different locations. There's another person, uh, Peter Tusco, in Southington, who belonged to a family in Kensington, Connecticut, who purchased his freedom or was manumitted. And he also leaves his estate to the child of his former master. And, you know, I, I don't want to make it seem like the enslavement of these folks was, you know, some kind of benevolent family situation or anything. It it wasn't. Um, Slavery in Connecticut could be just as cruel as it was anywhere else. But these are people who've been alienated from their homelands and from their families. They probably did form bonds and maybe even bonds of affection. At the same time, I think this needs... This is something that needs to be studied more because, of course, there's trauma involved when you're separated from your family. Right. And, and you know, the, the relationships, I think, are, are complicated. But when Samuel Gibson died, he is the only person of African descent that I found to have a full obituary in the 18th century in the Hartford Current. And it is a fulsome obituary talking about his integrity his fairness, his intelligence. And in his inventory, his inventory is also an interesting collection of things because like many people, many men of African descent, he has a violin. Oh, it's not interesting. And it's something you don't find in white inventories very much. Mm -hmm. And this is by inventory, you mean the list of things that are, that's in his estate after he dies. Right. Yes. Yes. And, you know, you can imagine him on a summer night in Hartford playing the violin, having people into his grocery store. He was a beloved figure. And he is called Mr. Gibson. That is an amazing sign of respect, which I'm sure he deserved. Another story that caught my attention was Madame Dubois. 
Tell us about this complicated woman. <laughs> she's, she's really fascinating. When I first found her mentioned on a sextant's list, in other words, a burial list in the ancient burying ground, she was listed as Mrs. Dewborn. And I think it was oh. just kind of a, a typo or you know something. Um, because, British interpretation of Dubois. <laughs> well, in the, in the newspaper death notice, so she, uh, I'll just say, compared to Samuel Gibson, she gets like two lines. But in that two lines, I think there's a kind of a printing blob or something that sort of changes the I to look like an R. And... Um, and so she's always referred to as Mrs. Dubourne, but she is Madame Dubois, Jean Dubois. She was born in France, and she and her husband had a what's called a habitation, plantation, in, pardon my French pronunciation, Petit Guave, near Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And in 1789, the French Revolution occurred, and Haiti also experienced an uprising, which particularly got particularly volatile in 1791 around Port-au-Prince. And so Madame Dubois left in 1792. And when she left, she wrote a will in French, leaving a copy on her habitation and bringing one to Hartford with her. She was a widow and she was 38 years old. And this is interesting too, because she comes and stays at John Avery's Tavern. As far as I can tell, there's nobody to welcome her. There are no other people of French descent uh, from Haiti, other refugees. Most of them have gone to Philadelphia. And so she's in Avery's Tavern. The only kind of corresponding event I find at this time is that there's a, an enslaved man who belongs to Avery who kills himself and by jumping off the side of a ship. And that's reported in the newspaper, but nothing about his life is, is described. And so I don't know who's there. I don't know if she brings enslaved people with her, but in her will, she gives money to her African descended overseers of the habitation, quite a bit of money. She has a goddaughter who is what she calls a quarter main or a person of quarter black descent, right? And she leaves that person her dresses and a number of fancy goods and some money. And she has a number of other people of color that she leaves money to in her will. And the will, you can look in the Hartford County probate records, her, her will is transcribed into English. So you don't have to read French to know what's in there. Interestingly, uh, Cecily Dyer at the Pequot Library notified me about French records that were online, so we know something about what happened to her habitation after. When she left, she said in her will that she didn't feel she was able to free her slaves because she didn't know what the French government would do. We know that her son freed all of the people on the plantation in 1793, and we have the baptismal record for the woman who was the quartermain, where Madame Dubois stood up as the godmother. So this biracial woman that she calls a goddaughter, who inherits all the per, sort of her personal things, her yes. her dresses, etc., mm-hmm. is li- is listed there then. Yes. And then was she able? I know she had a will, and she made these uh, 
bequests, but was, did she bring money out of Haiti with her? Did she have money available to her? That's unclear to me. I'm not sure okay. how much she had. She must have had enough for a funeral because she has a pretty big funeral procession. She Her funeral was held in the North Church, but she's buried in the ancient burying ground that borders the Center Church. These stories always have so many loose ends that I, you just feel like you wish you could just talk to this person today and find out all these answers. But the fact that you've got such three different people, somebody, Willis, who became governor, who's a, a part owner of a plantation with enslaved individuals, a black grocer who's beloved in his community, and a French woman who seemingly arrives here without much uh, of a community to, to come to yeah. uh, in Hartford. All of those people are stories that are genuine stories from the ancient burying ground. Yep, and, and every one of them, I think, deserves more attention than I was able to give it in the period that I had to do the research. You know, and yeah. Kathy was, we were describing Madame Dubois. I, I, I sat here thinking, well, you know, why Hartford? Why did she come to Hartford? Is it because of this extensive trade network and all mm-hmm. the supplies? And she thought, well, perhaps Hartford is a prosperous place for me to go. Mm-hmm. She'd right? heard of it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. well, I, yeah. I don't think she could not have yeah. heard of it. So that's really fascinating I, as but well. I, I wonder, too, if her husband didn't have business dealing somewhere in Hartford and we just haven't found the account yeah, books, yeah. Yeah. you know, to discuss that. You know, their account books, like I know the Governor Trumbull account books are at the Connecticut Historical Society, that need to be really, I think, drilled into for some of this information and to give us some more information and details about this this time period. Now, what effect does the American Revolution have on this trade? Well, uh, you know, the, the major component of the trade, as, we, as you described, you know, in, in your uh, intro, Mary, is that this is the British colonies, right? So, so all of these British North American colonies, Connecticut included, are trading heavily with the British West Indies. Now, they're also trading with, with other islands from European nations that have been colonized there. But when the American Revolution starts in earnest, you know, the British Navy is the largest and most powerful Navy in the world. They can shut down trade whenever they choose, and they, they choose to shut down trade. Uh, and they send war vessels all along the eastern seaboard, uh, and they send them, importantly, to the Caribbean islands themselves. So all of these these vessels that are trying to make their way down there are either stopped, they, they have to you know sail off in the other direction, they're captured. Um, you've also got privateers, and you're going to be doing a show on privateers soon. They have, you have privateers that are going out to these vessels. We could also mention that this is the beginning of the insurance industry, <laughs> right? Hartford and insurance. So it really stops the trade. It, 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 it's no longer safely lucrative. And so uh, these entrepreneurs, though, you know, these Puritan entrepreneurs, they, they still want their bucks. They still want to earn their dollars uh, or their pounds, I should say. Mm-hmm. And so they, they shift in a different direction. And Connecticut is known as the provision state. And we're the provision state because we provide so many different kinds of foodstuffs to George Washington's army. Well, there's a reason we were in a position be, to become the provision state. We shifted what we'd already been doing for so many decades, you know, a hundred years uh, more. Mm-hmm. We're able to shift all of that. Now, it's not as lucrative as the sugar trade, but at least they're they're selling something. 
And so this becomes the really fascinating thing. You know, there's some people, you know, I, I think the United States is in a little bit of a, of a culture war today over whose history should we tell, you know, what's the sort of the traditional American history and why can't we just tell that? Well, Kathy just described a cosmopolitan Hartford that is fascinating. And I think the real point here is it's not choosing one of these cultural histories or one of these ethnic or racial histories. They're all tied together. America is all of that history. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the American Revolution, and you have to sort of, for Connecticut, accept that it's our ability to produce and become the provision state is literally built off of the sugar empire, which is built off of slavery. Oh, there's so much money that I'm sure accrued in those early families over multiple generations. And I know some of Kathy's, some of your other work for the Ancient Burying Ground talks about that. So, so that's kind of interesting. So we're, we're, we managed to um, win the, the war with Britain, partially because we are not as attractive as a colony as the West Indies. You know, we could, they kind of said, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> but the marit maritime trade in Connecticut continues with all kinds of activities. What research, new research, do you think we need to be doing to continue to tell this story, this full story of both Colonial Hartford and Connecticut, and really lead into telling new stories about our 250th anniversary? Well, I, so I think there's quite a number of stories that we could look into, and one is the actually the cabbage tree plantation, because I've corresponded with people who grew up on that plantation in the 20th century who now live in Hartford. And, oh, that's amazing. And there is, so there is kind of a continuous relationship mm -hmm. there. Well, um, how many years is that, Kathy? Is that, how many, yeah, so, 200, over 200 years? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Kathy looks great for her age. I, yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest about this. And, um, and I think, you know, I think there's a lot to look into with account books. I, I think we could just find out a whole lot more about these intermediaries, about people who were remaining in Connecticut, but who invested in the ships, for example. So we know that Norman Morrison, for example, bought seven sixteenths of a schooner and made money off of the trade to West Africa. But how many others invested in ships not going themselves to the West Indies or to West Africa, but reaping profits from that trade. And then I also think that there is kind of a rich history in women who migrated that needs to be studied more, with Madame Dubois being just one. Well, after hearing Madame's story, <laughs> I need to hear more about the women. Matt, what do you think? I totally agree with Kathy. I think those those account books are, are you know, you mentioned Trumbull. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't really know how many other account books that Connecticut Historical Society, or rather the Connecticut Museum of History and Culture today have, or the state library has. It's not an area of research that I've delved into, but I have to imagine that those account books hold a key to a lot of this story. The, the Farmington Library has a huge number, and of course Farmington was a real provisioner yeah. Um, yeah. of horses and other things. 
I want to thank you both so much. This is just a great episode and has a lot of really evocative descriptions of the people and places here in Connecticut and colonial Connecticut that I think we don't know yet. So we'll be looking for new research and more information. Thank you again. It's great to be here, Mary. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Kathy Hermans and Dr. Matt Warshower. Please go to our show notes for this episode for links to more information, including articles from Connecticut Explored Magazine. They're available to read for free. Can you use your power of giving to make a $250 donation? We would love to send you our brand new Grading the Nutmeg t-shirt as a thank you. Donor and t-shirt recipient Jack Suze writes, I love how this podcast uncovers amazing stories and historical insights right in our backyard. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.